When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv, here with a conversation episode. 
surprise, surprise. But this one is directly connected with this past Tuesday's episode, all about Helen of Sparta. I spoke with Alexia Burroughs' Carol Ambidu all about the concept of the Kalon Kakon, the beautiful evil that is so often used to refer to, I mean, very specifically Pandora, but Alexia's got some incredible points about women beyond Pandora that can be termed this so-called beautiful evil in ancient Greek. There's sort of a set of opposites, the Kalon, Kakon, and it's utterly fascinating. I've wanted to look more into this for ages, and so Alexia reached out and said, hey, I've just been studying this. And I was like, this is perfect, incredible. So we had such a fun conversation. We did talk for a really long time about a host of different things. So, you know, there are moments where it might be clear that you missed a conversation uh, switch in there. But honestly, it was so much fun. I learned so much. Alexia is so knowledgeable on this. Completely fascinating. We really had so much fun. It was so lovely having Alexia on and I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation episode in large part about, oh, that fascinating woman I have spent two weeks talking about already, Helen of Sparta. Conversations, Helen as the Beautiful Evil, the Kalon Kakon, with Alexia Burroughs Karalambidu. So, Kalon Kakon, it's so fun. I've I'm so fascinated with this whole topic because it's something I've like, I'm just slowly starting to learn ancient Greek. I've sort of stopped for a while. Um, I but it's, that. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. I'm like, I got deep into modern Greek before I went, which I think is a lot more That's practical. That's really useful. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I really like it. Yeah. So, I mean, I just think this whole concept is so interesting. And then I was reading Pandora's Jar by Natalie Haynes. And yes, so good generally, but she gives such a really like an interesting, I mean, she gives the sort of take on it, the, I don't want to dive now, I'm going to dive too in, too far in, and we're not even like going into the episode yet, but Kalon Kakon, for my listeners, has a lot of different translations, possible, beautiful, evil is how it's most commonly translated, Um, but as I learned with Natalie Haynes, it can also be beautiful, ugly, which is really fascinating difference. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, you're the one here to talk about that, so I won't go too far into it. So it's such an interesting topic. Um, I think it's something that people will, they'll read Hesiod and they'll come across Kalankakon or Beautiful Evil as it's usually translated. Obviously, Natalie Haynes has shone an entirely different light on it, uh, which is so cool. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. but it's something that people will read in Hesiod and they'll just be like, okay, cool. Like, okay, she's beautiful and evil. That's great. Because um, a lot of people going into Hesiod, at least now, already know the myth of Pandora. Like, she has the box, uh, Pithoi, of course. Uh, um, not at all a box. Yeah, <laughs> An enormous jar. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice jar. It's a lovely Greek jar. And they'll go, oh, yeah, she's going to release all the evils. That's that's great. And leave the other one in the jar. Usually depicted as a butterfly. You know, that's, mm. that's what modern 
things kind of draw it as, which I find really weird. But hope is a butterfly. All right, enjoy that. It's cute, but I don't really get it. But you know, no, I yeah, agree. It's pretty, I'm sure, but I don't really see the reference point. Yeah, absolutely. So I think people just go across it and they go, oh, okay, cool, and just move on and forget entirely about it. But I saw it and I thought, oh, that's a really interesting concept. So I decided to go into it a bit (laughs) and I discovered like a whole plethora of scholarship and just interesting takes on it. Obviously, most of them focus on Pandora, but then I saw it in another book, Ruby Blondell's book on Helen, or it was Bethany Hughes's book on Helen. Mm. Someone had said that Helen of Troy was also a Kalan Kakon. And I went, okay, I've read about that before. I went, that's a really interesting take. And I love Helen of Troy. I'm a Helen of Troy enthusiast. I love her. (laughs) I think she's brilliant. People disagree. I think she's fascinating. I definitely want to I think she's do cool. more study on her. Absolutely. Yeah, you absolutely should because she's so cool. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't this is an angle because it's very briefly mentioned, I would argue. Like, there's no I haven't seen like a dedicated paper on it before. So I was like, I wanna do that. I'm gonna do that. <laughs> um and I, I read into it and I, I saw like lots of arguments for why and you have to define what Kalankakon is especially I obviously took the route of beautiful evil because I think that one seemed the most enticing to me Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and at the time I hadn't actually read Pandora's Jar I read that about uh halfway through uh writing Mm -hmm. it and I was like oh no another angle yeah (laughs) (laughs) so I looked into it and I was just astounded at the the gap almost that had been uh left so I just endeavored to look into it even more but I found that you can apply it to a good few things. You've got Pandora, obviously, who was the blueprint, really. And then you've got Helen, who was the natural follow-up um, for Pandora, really, because very beautiful and uh, yet caused so much strife and harm and evil, as it was. Um, but then you've got women like uh, Medea. mm and um, also you've got Circe to an extent, or mm, Turkey, mm-hmm. depending on your pronunciation. I found that you could apply it to metals also, mainly necklaces and specifically the metal of gold, because uh, mm. that's seen as Aphrodite's metal, um, which I found really interesting. I, I'm not sure where that exactly originated for, from, but one of the ones I found really interesting was in uh, the Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite, mm. and it describes her... Uh, she was being dressed by the oh yes horai I'm not sure yeah this, <laughs> i think it's horai it's the seasons they're like yeah. they're dressing her so that she can go meet up with anchises because yeah. of <laughs> zeus and oh good stuff <laughs> uh, of course thanks zeus <laughs> <laughs> so the seasons are dressing her and she's just dripping with gold she's got gold on her head she's got gold earrings and she's got gold. Um, the sentence that really uh, jumped out to me was that they'd uh, put it uh, right on her breasts. So mm. they'd gone. They're like painting her almost? Yeah, like that. So they're like, on her immortal head, they put a finely wrought diadem 
a beautiful gold one, and in her pierced earlobes, flowers of oricale, I'm assuming that means orchids, and precious gold. About her tender throat and white breasts, they decked her in golden necklaces. And I just love that. She is dripping in gold. They've gone, right, I'm going to put it right on her chest and on her tender neck. And it just, it's very seductive. And I think that was absolutely the intention. Obviously, she's going for a a meetup. <laughs> Cheeky meetup. With the mortal. <laughs> yes, with the mortal. How shameful. <laughs> of course, for a woman, of course, not for the men. No, no. no. Not for Zeus. <laughs> and that is all just so it's such beautiful imagery but also it's very um erotic i would say Mm -hmm. and this is kind of repeated also um there's another story concerning aphrodite and gold so necklaces are apparently frequent tokens of erotic treachery uh, which Ooh. I didn't know before embarking on this. I, I read it and I was like, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> um, and I had a look into it. I was like, oh, yeah, that's actually a really good point. So Aphrodite had given to Helen uh, this necklace, which was very gorgeous, of course. It was a yeah. gift from the goddess of love to the most beautiful woman in the world. Uh, so after Helen went to Troy, she didn't take it with her. Menelaus decided to dedicate it to a temple. Um and it ended up in the hands of this beautiful but lustful young woman who uh, echoed Helen's behaviour. So she ended up falling in love with a man, uh, a young man. Uh, they were both unmarried and they ran away together. And um, there's a bit of discourse on whether that was like because of the necklace or because of her generally. And she was attracted to the necklace because of this. Yeah. But I found it so interesting that gold especially was uh, used in that story. And uh, it's very cool. Okay, now I have to ask. Okay. Because you're sort of blowing my whole mind on a lot of... (laughs) Like, on this topic, but specifically as it relates to... So, I'm so curious if any of this has come up in relation to um, the necklace of Harmonia. Um, I personally haven't looked into it, but I expect it would have. Yeah, Um, because that's like (laughs) a somewhat cursed necklace, depending on what you read and from when or whatever. But it's and she's the daughter of Aphrodite and it's Mm. given to her from Hephaestus. And oh, my gosh, I've got so many questions now. Fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole little research project. (laughs) I mean. I mean, there's a certain novel that's been in the works for like 10 years about Cadmus and Harmonia and that necklace. So now you just helped me out a little bit. <laughs> I saw you writing it down. And I was like, oh, she's, oh, yeah. she's found something she likes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. Necklaces and gold mm-hmm. especially is a, a massive thing, I think, for Kalon Kakon. Um, and people might be wondering why. So you've got the obvious Kalon side, the beautiful side, mm-hmm. um, going, oh, yes, they're very beautiful, very seductive, very nice. But um, obviously, in a lot of these stories with uh, the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, obviously, she doesn't want Anchises to know that she is the immortal goddess Aphrodite. There is an element of deception in that. And she's, like, disguising herself as this young maiden. And um, it's all, like, a big secret. So Mm -hmm. there's deception baked right into that, which is much what Pandora is like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the same with Helen's necklace. Like, no one knows it has these powers almost lurking underneath the surface. 
if you will. Not necessarily that there are powers within the necklace, but that they're um, kind of echoing Helen's behaviour or Aphrodite's lustful powers are being kind of channeled through this. Yeah. So Pandora herself, when she's being created, obviously she's moulded out of clay or earth, um, depending on which translation you get. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's dressed by goddesses and uh, graces and everything beautiful like, beautiful like that. Moulded by Hephaestus and then dressed by Athena in some of them. So Pandora is kind of enhanced. Um, Athena gifts her in works and days. Uh, a girdle and ornaments and the graces give her golden jewelry once again that gold is coming back up and then she the seasons are dressing her in spring flowers and kind of doing with perfume I haven't looked into perfume but it is another angle that you Mm. could look at Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't have the room, unfortunately. Yeah, there's so many things. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh, everything interlinks as well. So it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> I love this topic. From Theogony, which is the mm. one where uh, the Kalon Kakon is actually referenced. It's not referenced in Hesiod's works, works and Days. I'm right. not sure why, but he seems to have omitted the, that phrase. Um, and just to remind my listeners, I think, too, like I, maybe I'll... I'm going to make, like, might link the Pandora episode in this as well because I recently covered Pandora. And she's so interesting because Hesiod covers her in both Theogony and Works and Days in yeah. like fairly different ways. So it's, yeah, yeah it's, an interesting. It's so weird because I was looking at it and I was like, these are different people. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, to note that she it's only in the Theogony I think is interesting because also he's shittier to women in Works and Days than the Theogony. Hesiod is just so. shitty to women. For sure. That's why I say shittier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my one of my lecturers in my first year said um, said something rather profound about Hesiod. Uh, she went, uh, Hesiod as uh, as bright and intelligent as he was to be able to write and publish and everything like that was quite a simple man, and he would be absolutely <laughs> astounded that his works were being studied thousands of years in the future. But he would be absolutely horrified that there were women in the class, oh. <laughs> and it really made me laugh. And I was like, you know what? You are absolutely right. <laughs> oh my god, absolutely that guy. <laughs> so in Theogony, Pandora is adorned in silvery clothing rather than gold. Mm. Uh, she has a highly wrought veil. It doesn't give her an indication as to color. Uh, flower garlands once again and a golden headband the golden headband is what i really like to focus on because Mm -hmm. it's got all of these gorgeous engravings Uh, hephaestus made it once again um but it's um the description of this diadem it's uh highly wrought it's endowed with uh terrible monsters but also these beautiful creatures and gracefulness is breathed right in which i believe is the quote and um and they're all also endowed with speech which i found really interesting because i'm not sure mm. how you endow a headband with speech but if you can mm-hmm. make clay into a woman you know i'm not i mean question yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> and i really took that as a reflection of pandora herself so mm-hmm. she's this that this is this headband is something that's been molded and uh wrought by hephaestus and it's it's been created by him, uh, such as Pandora has been. And then the the breath and the speech and everything has, and her gracefulness has been breathed in and it's all been gifts from the gods. 
so Pandora's name actually translates to all gifts, mm-hmm. in, uh, according to some people. I don't study ancient Greek language, so I can't check that myself, but this is what I've read. Yeah. <laughs> and this is what they I provide. <laughs> I really enjoyed the duplicity in the diadem and Pandora herself because mm-hmm. I just I just found it so interesting that they kind of did the same things. Um so you've got this terrible monster that's kind of smoothed over with the gracefulness, much like Pandora, which really echoes Hesiod's sentiment as Pandora being a Kalon Kakon. Yeah. Well, and what I find so interesting about it, and this is, you know, I'm my main sort of reference point for Kalon Kakon was having read it in Pandora's Jar. So I'll, I'll preface with that. But the I find it so interesting, the idea that it can mean ugly as well, yeah. because, you know, what Natalie Haynes then sort of clarified with that is that they're two equally descript- descriptive words about more visual descriptive versus, you know, like Pandora being beautiful, ugly is so different from her being beautiful, evil, you know, evil is like, she thinks about it. She does this on purpose. She, you know, releases those evils on purpose. And of course, you know, I think Hesiod would probably want it translated as beautifully, beautiful evil, right? I don't think he would mind. (laughs) I don't think so. But at the same time, if you actually like are looking at her story, like she doesn't, have any agency in it she doesn't like think like all the modern interpretations of pandora suggest that or like you know i should say pop culture you know like not academic but you know the modern understanding of her is like oh yeah she was this curious woman like she was the eve she sought to look in and free the evils like she did it because of her own feminine curiosity right whereas if you read the sourcing like no like she doesn't yes please Hermes was the one who instilled this uh I think they call it a bitch's mind and knavish oh, nature. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and like that was a man. <laughs> like while yeah. uh Aphrodite did instill curiosity, um mm-hmm. curiosity yeah. isn't inherently a bad thing. It was no. Hermes that instilled what they would consider to be the negative traits. Yeah. The trickster god did Hell this, yeah. you know? Like <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting. And really, yeah, like she doesn't choose to open it. She doesn't say like, I'm going to fuck shit up or I'm going to ignore instructions, all these things. She just opens it. Yeah. Or or in some cases, it just, it opens. Like whether or not she even does it, she's just there. And Absolutely. it was a gift to her. So she gets the blame in this really fascinating way of, yeah, I think looking at it as, as beautiful, ugly is like, it's just amazing. Cause you're like, oh yeah, right. It's just like, it's imagery placed upon her versus something yeah. that she does but i mean even just like looking at it as beautiful evil is still just equally fascinating especially when you look at hesiod because he okay. really like he lets it all really hang out when it comes to the two stories of pandora but like how he sees women i think that's hesiod for you <laughs> oh my god there's a um, yeah. there's another bit of it that mm-hmm. i always find really interesting so she's described as a precipitous trap um, mm. as well she is de- this is what her destiny is she is there to wreak havoc because prometheus stole the fire um and zeus wasn't too pleased about it because when <laughs> zeus doesn't get his own way bad shit happens oh, absolutely <laughs> he's like a spoiled toddler i don't really... <laughs> I mean, we all know how i feel about zeus <laughs> so like her whole thing was she was meant to be a curse 
That's what she's described mm-hmm. as. The first curse is Pandora, and the second curse in Hesiod is uh, the avoidance of marriage and children. Um, so men who don't uh, marry these horrific women that uh, Zeus and the gods have created have inflicted their own curse upon themselves by not doing that. So you're cursed either way because of woman, according to uh, according to Hesiod. But we have to remember whose actions led to this. It's Prometheus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like We can't blame it all on Pandora. She was just moulded. It wasn't her fault. And it's also just like the idea of Zeus being a vindictive asshole, right? Like, you know, yes, as much as it is because of what Prometheus did. Like if Zeus wasn't such a shit, who needed to have his way all the time wouldn't have caused any trouble either. <laughs> Absolutely. But I, I just, I love that she is the blueprint for women also. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's the one that everything is based upon. It's not necessarily based upon the gods. She is in the image of the gods. So we know that she is absolutely bloody gorgeous because uh, by definition, apart from the Furies, of course, all goddesses are gorgeous. <laughs> um as far as it goes. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So we know she's gorgeous, but on the inside, it's this rotten interior. And this this idea carries on and on and on and on. And this idea of molding your wife, of course, uh, also continues in Iscomachus's, uh, not Iscomachus's, but he is the man speaking, in Oikonomicus, mm-hmm. I believe it's by Xenophon. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about how Iscomachus molds his way. He's even having a conversation with Socrates. Of course. And Socrates is talking to Iscomachus, and he's ta- and Iscomachus is telling him how he molded his very, very young wife. <laughs> um, like, he wanted her to know as little as possible, which oh, creeps me out in ways I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't even describe how much I hate it. But, yep. like, he's like, I wanted her to know as little as possible and then one day she came, and she came, she came to me when I come home from. I, I guess I think he was working in the fields. One day I came home, and she was wearing. She'd rouged her cheeks, and she'd whitened her face, and um, she'd she'd altered her height by wearing shoes with blocks in them. And he was like, "What is this deception? Do you think that as <laughs> husband and wife we should deceive each other? This is terrible, terrible, awful." I prefer you as plain as possible, essentially. That's what he's saying. He's like, no, I don't like you in makeup. Other men will find you hot. Like, I don't like that. No. (laughs) The way you can see that mentality in some modern... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oof. Yeah. So many feelings there. (laughs) So many feelings. (laughs) But, like, this idea that this exterior of... Uh, beauty because obviously this uh, this young wife was trying to beautify herself and she says oh but you know I did this for you and he's like I don't care <laughs> in yeah. more words of course he's trying to be very charming about it because uh, ancient Greek men like to uh, big themselves up I think <laughs> especially in a so- Socratic conversation yeah <laughs> it's got to be pretty of course <laughs> um, so She's like, oh, I did this for you. And he's like, oh, I don't want you to because the more beautiful you are, the more attention you'll attract and then the more havoc will be brought, which is exactly kind of what happens with Pandora. She's beautiful and attracts a lot of attention from Epimetheus, bless him, <laughs> god, the god of afterthought. <laughs> I feel very bad for that man. Like, oh, <laughs> 
He's the only innocent one, I've decided. <laughs> I, I can see that, yeah. I mean, he really had no control over it. Like, he is literally the god of afterthought. <laughs> so you get that with Pandora, where, like, she's beautiful but concealing something, much like this wife is considered to be by a stomachus. But then you have Helen, who is so beautiful, she causes, at the time, uh, in quotation marks, of course, <laughs> the biggest war that the world had ever seen. <laughs> like, it, it, yeah. it puts out this idea that being pretty or beautiful or considered, like, above average is a lot of trouble. So in ancient Greece, um, in more kind of a classical period, when the citizenship law by Pericles came about, mm. a lot of women were meant to stay inside, away from men, because if they went outside, it would cause trouble because they're beautiful. And oh, yeah. you, you see this in uh, Lysias 1, where this uh, wife go- is, goes to a funeral, and this man sees her. She's, so this wife is young, she's married, she's had a baby with her husband, and Lysias makes that very, very clear that they've already had the baby because of the citizenship, how the citizenship law works, because otherwise the child would be considered illegitimate and would not oh. be able to inherit property once the uh, father died. And he's like, she went to a funeral, she was in mourning, and yet still a man was attracted to her and caused trouble. So it reinforces that women should be locked away <laughs> kind of message, which is just mm-hmm. so one wrong. <laughs> like yeah. it's wrong for one. It's but like very it's classically so, Athenian. <laughs> yeah, it's very Athenian. But it's so interesting in how all of this just interlinks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, yeah, because, you know, they cause so much trouble if they're just out and about being good looking. <laughs> How dare they? Right? The nerve. <laughs> the nerve. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, so I, uh, because I've sort of now developed this love of this idea of the beautiful, evil, beautiful, ugly, um, I... I named a cocktail in my new cocktails <gasps> book, and I'll reveal it now in this episode. I feel um, so blessed <laughs> and to be gifted so, this knowledge. <laughs> and I did something weird with it, you know. So I'm like, the more I listen, I'm kind of like, hmm, I kind of, I'm curious about what I did and how it'll be. I mean, it's a cocktail; it doesn't matter. But so I chose to go with beautiful, ugly for Medusa. Ooh. Yes, because I thought it was just an interesting way of addressing, you know, obviously I am me and this is my world. So if I'm going to have a Medusa cocktail, like it's going to address the fact that like she is deeply misunderstood and pop culture representation is completely wrong and all these different things. So I use Beautiful Ugly to kind of go with that and suggest that, you know, she like her monstrosity is questionable. I would argue it's very like, I think it's pretty unclear. Like we have, you know, we have a lot of Gorgon imagery that often it's not named Medusa until yeah. unless it, when it just looks like a Gorgon. And I find that so fascinating. She's the only mortal one, you know, there's so many things, yeah. but I decided that it sort of suited her when it comes to taking her story back from Perseus of like, she is a beautiful, ugly. She is kind of, she's just sort of all things, but none of them required her to be killed by Perseus. That yeah. was, you know, that purely... was a dick move, man. Exactly. It was a hundred percent just because like Polydectes wanted Perseus killed and he was going to do it by having him, you know, die trying to kill Medusa. Mm. But like, it's just, I, you know, I, I will take it upon myself to constantly 
push back against the idea that she was deserving of death in any way. And I just, yeah, I don't know. I suppose using beautiful evil was an interesting way to do that. But then because of the layout of my book, I think I'm pretty sure the very next cocktail, it's like a section later, but is Pandora's jar. So then I go even <laughs> deeper into the beautiful evil or beautiful so ugly. Exciting. Yeah, so it's very fun. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of I I mean, uh, honestly, for a book of cocktails, this is like the most academic shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm going to teach people ancient Greek <laughs> and like oh yeah, the level of nerd that is in this like you know two paragraphs for each cocktail you know what it's pretty... like a reward system read something academic get drunk i think exactly. i see it as a win-win <laughs> absolutely and i i just bought the ingredients to make the beautiful ugly the medusa mm. cocktail so i'm gonna have to make one soon and the the garnish for it is a rose with the thorns on i love that with my no i don't know how you can do it with a cocktail i don't know how you're gonna drink that without injuring yourself well you're supposed to drape it you're supposed to drape it on the glass i think (laughs) it seems a little complicated to me but interesting i do love (laughs) and beautiful ugly i guess (laughs) i love that i love that with my whole heart (laughs) (laughs) helen so i'd love to know more about yes helen Helen. generally and how helen fits in with all of this not that you haven't said a lot already but i just want to talk about helen helen is my one true love (laughs) i adore her as she should be there's that key line about her that appears absolutely everywhere the face that launched a thousand ships (laughs) and i mean it didn't there was not a thousand ships if there were any ships actually but (laughs) i like the line it's it's a good line it's if really, not classical <laughs> it's glorifying her beauty mm-hmm. to such an extent which um i've kind of assumed has probably come from her olympian paternity rather mm-hmm. than her mortal paternity because her siblings uh i can't remember which way around it is one of the twins uh, one of the twin boys is from the I... olympian I think it's Castor. Yeah, but I, I feel like it is. Always, but I'm never yeah, sure. I always question it too. Yeah, yeah I'm always I'm like, with you. <laughs> it's one of them. <laughs> but not the other two are not described in such a way that Helen is. Um, mm-hmm. Helen is this vision of perfection. She is described in some cases as like a surrogate Aphrodite, which I can't be sure that Aphrodite would have enjoyed considering everything mm-hmm. with Psyche. Mm. <laughs> yeah she doesn't really allow that yeah but she seems to give helen a lot of gifts so mm. i I'm sure, i think she's fine to be fair i think she's like yeah if i just pair you with my favorite guy paris I'll, that'll it'll be fine yeah <laughs> she's like i almost wonder though whether that was part of it right like yeah. whether maybe you know, that's the, why she the, likes her so much <laughs> well yeah or like the subtle inclusion is that like you know the little hidden pieces that Aphrodite knows it'll start a war because yeah. and then she's that's kind of her way of you know making Helen not so perfect yeah because if Helen started Absolutely. a war then her beauty doesn't mean as much there has to be some <laughs> flaws you know can't have it all nice and rosy yeah sometimes you'll just start the biggest war the Mediterranean had ever seen <laughs> Woo! <laughs> party time <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably from her Olympian paternity, but we can assume that it has actually been enhanced by Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. As in um, Iliad uh, book three, I believe, when she's calling Helen to come back inside and meet her lover Paris, she um, she threatens to take away her gifts and her favour. 
Mm. So, and we do see the gods and goddesses beautifying or changing their appearance of the favourites. So I, I believe we see it in uh, Apollonius and Argonautica with Jason, where Hera's mm-hmm. like, let's make him look spectacular. <laughs> like, shooting all these superpowers into him. So, so poor, poor Medea. <laughs> well, and Athena does it to Odysseus too, right? Yeah, you know, she in does. lots of different ways, disguising him, but then also when she finally reveals like, him. Yeah, then she <laughs> makes him look like as good as he's ever looked before. Like, you know, he's, he's yeah, a handsome he, hunk of a man. <laughs> he's he goes from, you know, hidden Odysseus and an old man to like the hottest Odysseus you've ever seen. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I think you see that uh beautification via the gods interference if you will Mm -hmm. and it's not just from her olympian paternity but this beauty is really really hard to capture i believe uh cicero notes uh zeuxis i'm not sure if i'm saying his name right uh he's a Mm. he's a painter and he was commissioned to paint helen of troy this was many many years after she would have uh passed Mm. um not necessarily suggesting that she was ever alive but right you know uh, it would. It was many years after the Iliad was written, at least. Yeah. So he auditions all of the women in the city to find Helen's likeness, and but none, uh, unfortunately, possess the beauty of Helen. No one can. Yeah. So um, instead, he picks five girls who are the most beautiful, or five women. It's a, a bit un, 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 yeah. un, unclear on the exact translation. He selects the five most beautiful women and uses their best features. So he's like, oh, I'll take your face and then your arms and then your chest and then your your bottom and then your legs. And he goes, that is how I will create Helen and her composite. But it's really interesting because her beauty, despite that we know that she is the most beautiful woman in the world, we -hmm. don't know what she looks like. No, we don't know what made her that beautiful. It's just like an inherent, like indescribable thing we they always describe her as like the most beautiful or stunningly like the immortal goddess or frightening like frighteningly like the Mm. immortal goddess i believe is the quote from iliad 3 but they never actually say why they don't say her hair is as radiant as the sun or anything they don't say anything like that which Mm -hmm. is you get a lot of epithets with other women Mm -hmm. we occasionally get like white armed or you know stuff like that but that's Mm -hmm. very very basic it's very traditionally just like that's how they describe women. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not really diverging from mm-hmm. anything. But in this way, you also see Helen as quite similar to Pandora because she is almost molded and from the, from the painting. Mm. Um, we don't know what she looks like, much like Pandora. We don't actually know what she looks like. We're just told that she is molded in the form of the immortal goddesses, much like Helen. She's which she's frighteningly like the immortal goddess referring mm-hmm. to Aphrodite. So we can assume that they're fairly similar looking, actually. So they're both, neither are described. Their actual features are not described. Mm-hmm. And they are almost composite in this painting. So Helen is com- comprised of five different women. And Pandora is molded to resemble these goddesses. Yeah, They are very similar in this way. So you get the the Kalon part, the beautiful part of Kalon Kakon, and you you see it kind of coming to life, but then the interior, the lustfulness of Helen or the curiosity or bitch's mind or knavish nature of Pandora <laughs> comes through and gives you this evil that mm-hmm. 
is so toxic and poisonous to the people around them that it destroys uh, it absolutely engulfs everything like Mm -hmm. pandora releases all of these evils into the world and then helen brings on the biggest war that the world has seen or Mm -hmm. at least the mediterranean (laughs) in their world that is the world (laughs) well exactly (laughs) so it's it's almost natural that they would both be considered Kalong Kakon. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting on how similar they are, especially in their, uh, their physicality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, they are just both the most, the two most infamous women of Greek myth absolutely. by far. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it makes, it makes so much sense that their, you know, infamy would be linked to their looks because that is, just you know entirely the way women were viewed yeah like you can't be ugly and evil like it just seems you know if you're ugly and evil you're a monster you're nothing yeah you're a monster you're a witch you're a crone i think that's a relatively normal comparison even for the modern Mm -hmm. uh kind of uh, interpretations of witches Mm -hmm. but the ancient interpretations can be very very different especially with Mm -hmm. the the kind of cologne cacon uh idea (laughs) Yeah, because it's almost like it, you know, it makes them sneakier, mm, right? Absolutely. It's like that is the, that's the main yeah. thing, the deception. <laughs> yeah, it, like it, the their evil is so much worse than a monster because you don't see it coming. Yeah, at you're least if, if you're monstrous on the outside, you can expect it. But if you're exactly oh, if you're beautiful on the outside, you're like, oh, it's kind of like Jason. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I always wanted to kind of compared to was Paris as well because he's beautiful but he also brought this absolute havoc upon Mm -hmm. poor Troy well yeah and I mean he would never be described as a Calon Cacon right like he would never because it wasn't it didn't matter with men right like it just yeah it's so interesting the everyone's busy describing him as a coward instead because he uses a bow or he goes from the top or the back or whatever they're not seeing him in the same way that they would see women even though he is very feminized actually yeah yeah like helen gets to be the one like she you know she's the one to blame she has agency in her blame in their understanding whereas he's just oh he's just beholden to his cowardice he's just Mm -hmm. you know he can't help it he's just (laughs) such a little worm like yeah it's you know i mean it's just it's so similar with jason too right like Jason doesn't get the blame. He's just, oh, it just happened. Things happen to him. He doesn't do anything. And like, yeah, that's. Jason is my least favorite. I <sighs> See, and I will die on the hill of Theseus, but Jason is awful. Oh, yeah. Theseus is awful as well. But Jason yeah. is old. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. 
You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big Medea lover. I, uh... As you should be. <laughs> yes, I think she's awesome. I will be going on to Cersei, actually. She's one of my uh, favourite women when I get to my witchcraft section. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> okay, wait, so, so there's witchcraft? Yes, we have some witchcraft in here. Okay, then please. <laughs> oh my God, keep going. So firstly, I'm going to continue on from Helen because mm-hmm. um, while people don't necessarily see her as a witch she almost is in her Mm. own right so Mm. you've got obviously in the odyssey you've got helen using that pharmaca to dull all of the evils that might come up and make them basically not cry it's um i believe it's nepanthe um it's like an anti-sorrow drug originating from egypt i think modern people have said oh i think it's opium that's mm. what a lot of modern scholars have gone. Yeah, because that'll make yeah. you pretty 
you know. Yeah. Yeah. Not make you quite happy. <laughs> Chill. Yeah. <laughs> Chilled out, quite happy. Not really yeah. sad, you know, you're fine. <laughs> so it erases these evils from the consumers. And uh, there's a theory that she's always using this, even when Telemachus isn't there, to mm. make this facade of a happy marriage between them and stop Menelaus from being so sorrowful. Because as you see, when uh, he walks in and greets Telemachus, he's they're crying over the war. Everyone's crying. It's all very sad. He's like, oh, my brother's dead. And Clytemnestra's dead. And all my friends are dead. And Odysseus is missing. And it's all very, very sad. <laughs> so that was one time where Helen hasn't entered yet. Uh, she had mm-hmm. entered, but she had not been able to administer the drugs as of yet. She administers them almost immediately after before uh, Menelaus is telling his uh, stories. So there's this idea that, um, so Nepanthe is uh, a form of pharmaca. So like a a drug um, is the translation for it. Um, It actually Mm -hmm. literally translates as something you smear, I believe. Oh, interesting. So it can also be used for makeup, which is another route Mm. I dove down. And so it translates as something to smear, but it's also mainly used as describing drugs. So Mm -hmm. um, I believe Circe, or yes, I believe it is Circe, is described as a pharmacaeus, a a master Mm -hmm. of drugs, or a mistress Mm -hmm. of drugs. And uh, Medea gets the same treatment, and I love that for her. (laughs) Damn right. (laughs) Yeah. So, obviously... Helen is now employing these drugs, which is probably someone that no one really associates with uh, this witchcraft uh, and drug administering. Now, a lot of people may say, well, drug administering is not witchcraft, but then it was considered it, much yeah. like home remedies back in like the 16th century for like illnesses. So someone has an illness and they and a local herb woman like fixes them. They're like, ah, oh, she's a witch. We got to burn her. Like back then it was considered like a marvel, something really interesting. And, uh, well, yeah, I mean, they were considered witches. Pharmaca is like, it's everything. But then, of course, it's where we get pharmacy from. Yeah, so it, absolutely. It, yeah, it meant, meant so much. But of course, yeah, the idea of witchcraft is basically just like healing things half yeah, the time. Yeah. Um, it also is obviously, uh, I'm going to use it for also some more negative, if you will. Well, yeah. I mean, Medea does some bad stuff with her pharmaca. Just a touch. Respect. But, yeah, it's fine. But, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. We'll, we'll just gloss over that. It's fine. It's fine. I love Medea. Um, she can do so whatever she wants. Helen administers this Nepenthe and makes Menelaus and uh, Telemachus very, very happy. And it's all fine. So that's the glimmer we have in the Odyssey. But there is a further glimmer. So when uh, Menelaus and Helen are telling their stories to Telemachus. Helen tells this story about how she co-conspired with someone and was really on their side and she was just being a double agent the whole time. But Menelaus tells a story of when the Trojan horse is outside the city and she walks around it, kind of gliding her hands very seductively over this horse <sighs> and she's mimicking the voices of the Greeks' wives calling out to them in their voices in this uh, mimesis it's uh, it's the mm-hmm. word that's used to describe it and it's this um almost very it's very subtle power of uh, witchcraft and it's quite terrifying and obviously someone call is about to call out so someone they're stabbed because like they would have given the whole operation away but she's so successful and so good at this uh, like copycat voice that it's considered quite uh witchcrafty 
Um, and it sounds like it. It's so cool. I love it. Imagine, yeah. imagine being able to do people like that well. Yeah. <laughs> that like people are like, oh, it's my wife outside. It's fine. <laughs> um, but this this idea of these uh, vocal cries is kind of carried on with Cersei. So she's described as dread goddess of human voice. And a lot of people have linked that to the Sirens also mm-hmm. in Odyssey 12, who, as we know, are really awesome. <laughs> I love the Sirens. I think it's the so The Sirens cool. are very cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I would like to compare that to Helen because you don't necessarily get that comparison very often mm-hmm. because she is so good at making this these beauteous sounds to these men because obviously they they're they're missing their wives they've been gone for 10 years they're very they love them they miss them they want to have them back that it's making them want to go and call out to her much like the sirens try to draw Odysseus to them for Mm. inevitable slaughter which is what would have happened if they'd caught if the men inside had called out so this mimesis kind of puts her in the same league as the sirens and Circe, who is uh, luring in Odysseus's men with her sweet singing uh, in the Odyssey. Right. <laughs> so I found that really, really interesting. There's also the um, really interesting comparison of Helen to Care. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Care, but she's like the bloodthirsty equivalent of Thanatos. How do I not know? What? How do you spell her name? K-E-R. Wow. She's really like Loki. Like, I know, but I've read everybody. (laughs) Um, That's amazing. I only found out about her when I was reading and I've been looking at Greek stories my entire life. My dad used to read them to me when I was going to bed. So Care, she's she's this like female progenitor of death, if you will. Mm. And a lot of the demise of men from the Trojan War uh, links Helen to her because obviously without Helen this would not have happened uh, yeah. assuming we follow the mythical uh, version of the story uh, the demise of men was associated with Helen because she was the one who bore all this blood and toil and death and all of this so she's linked to a death goddess mm-hmm. um, but then you have in Aeschylus in the Agamemnon the choral ode uh, says this she swerved aside and brought about a bitter end to the marriage, having come to the family of Priam as an evil settler, an evil companion sent by Zeus, god of hospitality, a fury who made brides weep. So she's compared to the mm. furies here, who are obviously like a vengeance demon, essentially. Mm-hmm. And they will they will fuck with you until the, <laughs> the thing is done, you know? Yeah. So absolutely. this um this other comparison with another underworld goddess is so striking to me because I don't know, I just love it. I love that she's compared with these things and it's obviously relatively mystical being divine and all mm-hmm. that. Um so I think it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. I'm now I'm like thinking about her in relation to Persephone and like Helen and Paris versus Hades and Persephone and I'm just kind of like, oh man I feel like I could take this so many different ways that's so interesting well interestingly Helen actually ends up marrying Achilles in the afterlife rather than anyone else I mean she's married how is she married she was adopted by Theseus she's had a rough yeah. do I would like to point out she's had a really yes. rough do so she was made from an egg 
you know, she was abducted <laughs> by Theseus. And then she married Menelaus because his brother won a contest. And then she was abducted or went with, obviously, the jury's out on that one, with Paris. Mm-hmm. And then he died and she married his brother, Diphobus. Then she went back to Menelaus. And then when they all died, she marries Achilles in the afterlife in some like, it's basically like a weird fanfic, but ancient Greek. Oh, that's so interesting. It's a bit strange. Helen is the most multifaceted, like, mythological woman, like, ever. I love her. There's just so much material (laughs) on her. There's just so many, like, different things, and I just find it so fascinating. I've probably said that a million times in this episode, but, like, she's just so fascinating. The whole voice thing is really Mm -hmm. interesting, and how she, like, links into, like, Cersei is really cool as well. And Mm -hmm. I I would say also her, like, seductiveness and her divinity does as well. So Helen's obviously very, like, she's very beautiful. She's very smart, very graceful. Cersei is very much the same, especially, I would argue, in the Argonautica. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know you read this uh, relatively very recently. recently. yeah. Um, but I loved Apollonius Rhodius writes, signalling softly with her hand, she offered a treacherous invitation for them to follow her, referencing Jason and Medea. And like we see her she's washing her hair in the ocean she's purifying herself like the sunlight's hitting her it's like a movie it's beautiful <laughs> i was like go apollonius that is beautiful that is a be- you've really set the scene <laughs> oh, the second two books like the first two i swear are just like conjecture not, like <laughs> just they're just like nonsense they're just like going on and on and on and the second two <laughs> books are like beautiful like that and I'm like, whoa, this is like two different works entirely, I swear. But Absolutely. yeah, uh, no. I, mean- I, uh, I studied the Argonautica last year uh, mm. during my degree. And um, I found the second two books a lot more interesting. But yes, yeah, so it's like <gasps> she's like very seductive. She's like pulling them towards her. She's going round. Them. She's like circling them and like looking at them. It's very interesting. And obviously the treacherous invitation is something I really like want to hone in on. Because mm-hmm. it's really that on moment so she's very seductive she's very beautiful she's gorgeous and she's extending her hand for you to come in and obviously we or the readers already know what she tends to do we already well, yeah. know that she turns these men into pigs not sure what she would do with Medea but she's her niece it's fine but um the men like it's like a it's like you're gambling with this obviously Jason doesn't know that and uh, Medea is just like oh you know it's my aunt we'll be fine but like she's really playing into that Kalonka con trope of she's very beautiful, very seductive, and but she's very treacherous, and you should be worried, much like Helen. Yeah, and everyone would know the story, right? Because mm-hmm. like you know, Argonautica was written hundreds of so, years after the century, Odyssey, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it's Hellenistic, so you know it's so long after the Odyssey that like everyone listening and mm-hmm. would know you know yeah, what's absolutely. like what Cersei can do and what she's done in the past yeah and you know obviously um the actual events of the uh Argonautica would have taken place before the Odyssey like in mm-hmm. tradition because um Nesta from the Iliad was supposed to be one of the Argonauts was he really I know Peleus was I forgot that Nestor was because Peleus like Achilles's dad was one yeah. of them so for um, sure so yeah obviously like you know, they're older than it's aged, um, so they don't know, obviously, from Odysseus what has happened, because it's like, mm-hmm. you know, that's in the future. 
No, but, but the listener, the reader the would. The reader, like, we all the, know. We're yeah. like, oh no, oh no, what's going to happen? We're on the edge of yeah. our seats. Like, oh dear. <laughs> like, I don't remember this happening, but maybe I'm wrong. I was just there like, mm-hmm. oh no, oh, oh crap, is something bad going to happen? Yeah. But I didn't really like Jason at that point. So I was like, I'm no, kind no. of excited to see what happens yeah. next. Jason's an asshole. <laughs> totally agreed. He is my least favorite Greek man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she's obviously... In the Odyssey as well, she's she's again very seductive and divine. She's singing beautifully in her house, and the the members of the of Odysseus's ship are like looking through. Apart from like a couple, the one that showed back stay back at the ship, which you know, good call. You know, I'll give you that. Yep. <laughs> With everything else that's gone on, can't really blame you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, she's there like, and she's like, oh yes, well, you know, I'll feed you. I'll um, so she gives it these men who have come into her home the most base animal desires that they could want. She's like, I provided them food, I provided them drink, and obviously there's a beautiful woman here as well. So they provide. She's provided them their most base animal desires, but then she flips it by turning them into actual animals, which is where the witchcraft obviously comes in. Mm-hmm. And this metamorphosis would be like particularly horrifying to readers because it's. Uh, somewhat emphasized even subtly but i think more so probably in the in the greek because obviously greek doesn't always translate perfectly across mm-hmm. to english um but they so it takes away their expression their language and their like choice which is what especially like greek philosophers uh really love about the human condition however it keeps their minds intact so they're mm. fully aware that they're trapped inside the bodies of pigs so this is incredibly distressing because it might be okay if you were trapped inside the body of a pig if you did not know what was going on if you just became the pig like you like like you know nothing else mm-hmm. but because they're like fully aware of what's gone on this is so horrifying to greek men and it makes Circe out to be this absolute like awful like th- this is the worst thing that she could do besides killing them and probably not burying them i'd, I'd assume yeah. Um, so she really flips this um, seductive and very welcoming and giving them these uh, base animal desires into turning them into these animals that are as low as the ground she walks on, which I really love. I love the like duplicity and like the symbolism in that. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy that. <laughs> and, you know, also as they're walking up, they see this like her little magical menagerie, if you will. <laughs> And some of them are like really unsettling and obscure. I, I can't remember whether this is the uh, Odyssey or in the Argonautica, but there's these mm. um, clay animals as well Ooh. that look like really weird, essentially, is um, how I've uh, kind of dubbed them. Like they don't look right. So the animals, mm. the normal animals are like really tame and everyone's like, hey, that's not right. That tiger is... He's really chilled out. Why is he not trying to eat me? <laughs> That's a bit weird. But then the clay animals, they don't look like animals, but you can tell they are animals. They're like on all fours, but they've got like extra limbs or two heads mm. and just really strange. And this, again, calls back to Pandora, I would argue, because this this clay moulding of these animals who are really unsettling and quite scary is, again, much like Pandora. Obviously, it's removing the beauty but it's invoking that Pandora image of like being molded and having this really unsettling thing um, 
beneath this really beautiful woman. So these are obviously Cersei's pets. Um, mm-hmm. They're her even familiars, if you will, um, that keep her company on the island, other than the, uh, I think it's written that there are some like nymphs and uh, women who are also there that help uh, provide drinks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are her companions, you know, these very strange clay animals. And it really does call back to Pandora and the whole tradition of kind of the witchcraft and flipping this uh, beautiful, very welcoming woman, like exhibiting uh, Xenia, which is like mm-hmm. the moral code of the Greeks, essentially. It's mm-hmm. like good housekeeping. The guest-host relationship. Yeah, yeah. like if someone turns up, you, up at your door, you let them in. If someone turned up at my door that I didn't know, I'd be like, mm, nah, fuck off. But <laughs> And you don't feed them your children. Yes, That's I the would key. avoid that. Yeah, yeah, that's that doesn't how get you anywhere. Gotten good. Some trouble among others. <laughs> yeah, it's not so good, and it tends to no. impact, impact your entire house. You know, he's from the house of Atreus. That Agamemnon, oh, Agamemnon I mean, and Menelaus started, is like great grandfather. Yeah. He's what started he all the trouble. He started the, go- the house of Atreus. Yeah. I'm going to blame him actually for everything yeah, that happened. Fair. It's all his fault for trying I mean, to feed Zeus his kids. It absolutely is his fault. <laughs> it's true. Um, that's why the Trojan War started because he did yeah. a dumb thing. That's that's my. I mean, opinion. there's only one cursed family in the Trojan War, and you know it's not Helen. Well, I guess it is technically Helen, but that sh- it shouldn't be. But it's that's Helen only because she married in. They're not exactly. related. Exactly. <laughs> no, they're a separate being. Like, yeah. it's their fault. It's the men. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I just think all the callbacks and how all the myths are like intertwined and. You know, some people will say, like, oh, we're just reading too much into it. But in Greek history and Greek mythology and just Greek storytelling, it's probably because they are all intertwined. They're probably brought down through the oral tradition because that's how all of these stories were told. Moving on from Circe, the direct path to go down is probably the familial one. So Medea, who I'm sure mm. your listeners will be very familiar with. So um, obviously. In Euripides' Medea, she's not looking her best, shall we say. She's described by Aegeus as, like, sallow and, like, tired and everything like that. Because, you know, she's basically grieving, essentially, the loss of her husband, even though her husband was a shithead. (laughs) Um, Like, she's still really sad because, you know, she's had two kids with this man. And... Well, and she's kind of like grieving the loss of her life through yeah, Jason, right? Absolutely. Because like, yeah, like the thing I always try to emphasize is it's not like he just leaves her and she's like, oh, I'm heartbroken. Like he leaves her and he leaves her in a foreign place unmarried and like just basically without Jason, she has nothing because yeah. of her status. She's got like a terrible reputation anyway, because like, you know, she's killed people, which, mm-hmm. you know, and she's I'm not foreign. She's a barbarian. Yeah, she's a barbarian. And as we know, yeah. uh, I know we're speaking from Athens and we're in Corinth. But the status of barbarians among, especially the Athenians, was horrific. Well, exactly. Euripides is an Athenian writing it. And so you get the status of barbarians and women. And so Medea's fucked. Barbarian murderer women. It's it's not the best mix to be left in a foreign country with when you can't go back to your family. Because, let's be honest, she fucked that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) just a little she can't exactly as you say she can't exactly go to Peleus's daughters and be like hi remember me (laughs) I'm the guy (laughs) I'm the lady who murdered your dad (laughs) Euripides I find what I like about him is he tends he at least in those that book and like back eye which are my two favorites he tends to like stay away a little bit from divine representation 
like he's more interested in what you know the humans are doing which i love absolutely you know medea's not looking her best and you know ajaeus is like why do you look so sallow and sad <laughs> which is a great thing to say to a grieving woman i'm 10 out of 10 <laughs> ajaeus like brilliant <laughs> really smooth <laughs> if you will well, you're yeah. an unmarried man looking for a wife like what is you doing he needs some lessons i mean he got her anyway <laughs> but i think that was due to other factors <laughs> mitigating I mean... circumstances but yeah so she's not looking great and um she's really very sad so the kalonkakon stuff almost doesn't apply in euripides's medea mm. um because she's not looking her best. We can still assess that she was, at some level, very beautiful. Beautiful enough for Aegeus to go, yeah, you know what, I'd, I'd marry you. Yeah, why not? I'd, I'd have kids with you. Um, that's fine. Um, so she's still like quite beautiful, but she's not like her best looking. So it would actually mm-hmm. weaken the argument, the Kalonkakon applying to her in this point. But you could look at it from a different view. So you could look at it in the quotes that she sends to Glauke. Um, you could say because they were gifts um, apparently from her grandfather the son so they're obviously going to be very very beautiful clothes and obviously the young princess is very taken with them she she puts them on immediately she's twirling around in the mirror looking at them they're obviously gorgeous but they're tainted with this hidden poison much like Pandora and Helen and Circe all very very beautiful but tainted mm-hmm. with this like sour underneath this hidden like terribleness that is going to inflict great harm this destructive poison kind of makes Medea akin to the Kalonkakon herself but through her actions more so than through her herself mm-hmm. and what's more with Medea as well so we've spoken about Euripides and all of that stuff but what people tend to focus on less uh with the Kalon Kakon aspect especially is um the Argonautica mm-hmm. so we are aware that she is beautiful um once again she is still divine because of her pe- uh, her parentage on her father's side she is the granddaughter of the sun so you know she uh probably shines like the sun in some way or something that's often how a lot of people who are related to the sun are uh, described actually mm-hmm. and you know her beauty's commented on a lot but one that really really sticks out to me is her divinely sweet head i really like mm. that one because i was like that is such a contrast to her later thing that's like anti-foreshadowing i love it <laughs> yeah it's very it sounds very not Medea. Yeah, that's like I think that's when uh, we first meet her in book three of the Argonautica. Mm. So we're not totally unsuspecting of her like witchy powers because obviously most people reading will already know of Medea. But also, you know, Circe's her aunt. Why wouldn't she have these powers? You know, she's mm-hmm. fine. You know, she's divine as well. She probably has at least some power. So my favorite episode in the Argonautica is in book four uh, with Talos the bronze giant mm-hmm. I absolutely adore this because you have the contrast of when we first meet her to when we kind of end the book the first meet her is this divinely sweet head she's a beautiful young girl she's very innocent very 
almost sheltered. She still does her witchcraft and stuff like that, but she seems quite sheltered. Like she's very sweet, very innocent. And then you get this beautiful passage of it, it inspires a bit of fear, actually. So uh, Apollo, Apollonius says, her mind set upon evil, she cast a spell upon bronze Talus's eyes with her malevolent glances. Against him, her teeth ground out bitter fury, and she sent out dark phantoms in the vehemence of her wrath. And I think that is awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's stunning like she takes down this giant with her eyes and bad thoughts that's manifestation on a different tier <laughs> like i love it um I, I just really love how that is done like this the ability to inflict psychological harm through her eyes like really enhances medea's character and you see this thing with eyes like a couple more times so helen has the same thing so there's in uh, Aeschylus's Agamemnon, it says that there's this statue of Helen and Men uh, Menelaus is sitting before it, staring at it. And it's driving him mad with longing because of the eyes in the statue. Mm. And he's staring at these eyes and he's just going a bit mad because uh, he misses her. He wants her back. He's not doing anything about it at this stage. He's still like crying in front of a statue. I feel a bit bad for Menelaus. Like, he's not you shouldn't he's not he's not the best but like he's not <laughs> he's not agamemnon so i think he's I got that he's going not, for him but... but i think he i think he only looks a bit better because he's got that right next to him and you know, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so like he's he's driven mad with this longing for helen through the power of this statue's eyes it's this effigy of helen it's not even helen which also shows her absolute beauty and power over these men these mortal men and obviously we see that similarly with Medea because she's destroying Talos with her eyes and her thoughts and that is must be so scary to a lot of things I think when people read that Apollonius actually pauses to say like he like breaks the fourth wall and he's like this is horrific mm. I hate this <laughs> He's like, this is awful. You should be scared that she can do this, which I find really mm -hmm. funny because I think it's the only time he does it in the book from my recollection. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like I didn't notice that in the moment. Now I want to go back. <laughs> but it's like so weird. Like he just like breaks the fourth mm -hmm. wall. And he's like, this is scary. Like be afraid. <laughs> yeah. um, so like even like the, the writer is scared of what he's writing. He's like, protect me against this evil that this woman can inflict with her eyes. I think is like roughly what he says. He's like, mm -hmm. I'm scared of this. So may the gods protect me essentially, because she can do this with her eyes and her mind. She doesn't need to have her potions that she's so famous for. Um, and I just find it so interesting. So you've got this contrast of her with her divinely sweet head and all of this, uh, this girlish beauty that you have at the start. And then you have this descent into this almost depraved and terrifying woman which is just so cool. And I think this part is like an ultimate embodiment of Kalan Kakon. I, 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 she's so interesting in that. And what I love so much about the Argonautica is that it's so explicit that Hera does it to her. Like that it's, it's so explicit that it's not natural to her. And that's what, I think that's what makes it me find it so much more like, yeah, entertaining to be like, yeah, you're like a dark fucking soul in this book. But it's like, no, no, it's, I mean, she wasn't doing it on purpose. It wasn't so it's fault. fine. So I can love it. 
It wasn't her fault, you know. Yeah. So I can. It's totally fault. fine if I find her murder just like completely and utterly. I think it's justified. You know, set her yeah. free. She's fine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's not her fault. But yeah. So just like to kind of sum up the whole thing, like the theme of Kalanka Khan is not exclusive to Pandora or Helen, even because obviously mm-hmm. some people have made that that comparison, but can be found in a range of things. So. Even, like, I haven't really spoken about this. I mentioned it very briefly. The feminized Paris could be considered. Mm -hmm. Um, Metals, especially necklaces and jewelry. Specifically gold, of course, is the metal of Aphrodite, as we discussed. Circe, Medea. It's just so fascinating. And I just love it. And I hope your listeners also loved it. Because... It's so much fun, in my opinion. <laughs> no, it is. It's such an interesting way of looking at it because, like, I mean, obviously, I look at all these myths so often and in so many different ways, but looking at them through this, that just that one phrase that means so much, but also is so, like, s- subtle, you know, it's not explicit in a lot of things, but it really has this really deep meaning in, in Greek myth. And yeah, no, I mean, I, I find it fucking fascinating. So but cool. then, <laughs> oh, God, anything in this world of greek mythology just gets me you know obviously because it's my whole life but like i love i've been so interested in callum cat so i was so excited to have you on to talk about it because it is just so fascinating oh my god it's been such a great opportunity (laughs) oh i'm so thrilled thank you thank you this is yeah it's so it's so interesting and like i love it especially because it's like the little bit of actual ancient greek that i'm slowly learning like yeah yeah, exactly there's some actual by little you know you don't have to do it all in one go but if no. as long as you learn like some really key phrases, you can probably get like you'll you'll read a, like a loeb or something, and you'll be like, I know that phrase. It's really exciting when you see like mm-hmm. a word that you recognize in ancient Greek without looking at the other side. You're like, yeah. Oh my god, I know that one. <laughs> it's so exciting. I will leave your yes. listeners with one thought um, of one thing I have really kind of wanted to argue. Um, mm. Was Pandora the blueprint for all women? And would you say all women because of this could be read through the lens of the Kalon Kakon? Mm. <laughs> That's my, my profound I, thing for the day. <laughs> no, I mean, I yeah, I find that so interesting because it, you know, it opens so many questions into sourcing and, and, you know, how broad the story of Pandora was and how deep it goes and how much we rely on Hesiod, even though he's just some random farmer from Boeotia. <laughs> exactly. I, right? It just, oh my God. To be that's fair, like a, aren't most question. of these men just like random, like, yeah, well, and the people like, who just the have draw, the audacity. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like people who have the audacity, absolutely. And just like, you know, what survived, what yeah, didn't. Absolutely. Like, because there's why? so many like, important texts. Like, do you know what I would love to get my hands on? And I think you would too. Ovid's Medea. It's all I want in my life. I want that mm-hmm. tragedy because we've got Seneca, we've got Euripides. Yeah. I want Ovid's because I know he would write it more beautifully than <sighs> anyone else. <laughs> See, and like, Ovid wrote, I think he wrote the Cadmus. Mm. He wrote something in that realm, and I would give anything for it. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Oh my God. There's so many. Euri- Sorry. Did I say Ovid? Euripides. Yeah. There's so many Euripides plays in the list of yeah. that we know the I list, and I'm like, fuck off! I want them all. <laughs> I have a a lecturer who specializes in uh, tragedy and comedy, mainly comedy. Mm. But she's like, what? I would not get. I would give life and limb <laughs> to get my hands on those. I'm like, Absolutely. I fully empathize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All I want in the world is just the missing, the lost, yeah. the lost pieces. I want more epic cycle because obviously I'm. Yeah. Gonna oh be, my god. Yeah. I'm going to be focused. Do you know what I actually really want? I really want to decipher not myself, but I want someone to work out linear A. That is. Yeah. The one thing because I'm now uh, looking at for my master's thesis reconstructing Helen of Troy, mm. and as she would be as a Bronze Age woman, and mm. one it's very fucking difficult because we don't have much written stuff and the written stuff we do have is in linear b and it's mainly like there are six women who work in the wool workers or there are five men in the bakers it's mainly like keeping like tally it's it's yeah linear b is like the most boring stuff but it's so interesting that it's that language but then yeah it's usually like well, we sent this much olive oil to this place, and they gave us wine. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Great, guys. Thanks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Super helpful. Um. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell my listeners kind of where they can find you if they want to know more uh, or anything so, you want to share? Awesome. So I'm Alexia Burrows, Caroline Bidu. I'm currently doing my masters, and my Twitter handle is alexia sbcl uh my initials because i'm and it will be in (laughs) (laughs) it will be in the the episode description too so you can just click on it uh well is there anything else you want to share yeah yeah if anyone has any questions or just wants to say hey i'm really interested where can i find like the reading on this specific bit that you talked about Mm. or even if you would like to access my thing Um, I am at some point going to be rewriting it, reformulating it based on feedback that I got from my supervisor. Um, But you are welcome to read it. And there are obviously some issues because I am only I was only a mere undergraduate when I wrote it. And, you know, you're always improving. That's the main thing. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, So if you want to access any of this, uh, just drop me a DM. Um, I'm pretty receptive, though I am a very slow replier. (laughs) More than fair. And I'll shoot you in the way of any readings. Some books that I would really, really, really recommend. Uh, Bethany Hughes' Helen of Troy, Goddess, Princess, Whore. That's an awesome one, especially if you're interested in the more archaeological side of things. She discusses uh, the Helen cult and the, the shrines and any actual evidence that we would have for her. I believe she's one of the people who made the Kalon Kakon connection for me. Mm. Um, Helen of Troy, From Homer to Hollywood by Laurie McGuire that's really cool and also if you're interested in in like adaptations of Helen so Mm -hmm. um you've got obviously Homer and then you get like stuff from like the Troy film with uh, Mm -hmm. Brad Pitt and Orlando Mm -hmm. Bloom and and those people which is really interesting and then finally the absolute key one that started my obsession (laughs) (laughs) Helen of Troy Beauty Myth Devastation by Ruby Blondell Mm. that is a wonderful book well, thank you so much. Honestly, it's no, been so exciting and wonderful. On. It's been a real privilege to talk about this. I'm very glad. I love all of the stuff. So I'm always thrilled when people give me great topics like this. So thank I'm you so, so glad much. You enjoyed it. I hope your listeners enjoyed it. And uh, again, if anyone has any questions or queries or something they just want to say, hey, I don't think that was quite right, just drop me a message. I'm always open to criticism. 
and or praise yeah. you can well, also you know, praise <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind praise <laughs> like i mean i wouldn't be i wouldn't be mad yeah just, i'm just saying leave it open yeah, <laughs> it's, absolutely it's wonderful criticism play praise or questions just drop me a dm yeah Ugh, nerds, thank you all so much for listening. Truly such a lovely episode. So much fun to record. And I just, I mean, you know me. I, I absolutely love learning this stuff. It, it's its endless. I just, I could learn more and I will continue to forever. Thank you all so much for listening. I am Liv and I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. 
join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.